Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guest is Jackie Strum, president and publisher of Wine Enthusiast Media. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I was wondering if you could give Peter and I a brief overview of your background and that of the wine enthusiast. Sure, absolutely. So I was essentially raised in the wine and spirits industry. A wine enthusiast was founded by my parents in the late 70s. And the magazine, which is the portion that I lead, was founded in the late 80s in 1988. And my background is I, I went to GW for international business. And the second I turned 21, I started taking the WSET courses all the way up through the advanced level. Most of my background is in digital media, focusing on wine and spirits brands mostly at digital agencies with a wealth of clients in that space. So I've worked on Gallo, Diageo, Moet Hennessy, and a few fashion brands as well. And I did that for many years up until I had an idea for a new business called Thirsty Nest, which is a wine and spirits wedding registry platform. And I joined my family's company to start it. It was a media commerce hybrid and it kind of took off and eventually became a part of Wine Enthusiast Media. And so I joined the Wine Enthusiast Media team a couple of years ago to lead the publishing team as associate publisher. And I've been working on that for a few years up until about a month ago when my sister and I were promoted in tandem to co-presidents, which was something we had been working on for many years. And I'm just really excited to be taking on this role by her side. And yeah, I, I love the company. I love the industry. And Wine Enthusiast is obviously a family business, but it, it feels like a family. There are so many people who have been here a very long time. And like many of our clients we work with, almost like a wine family. And and uh, yeah, I'm just looking forward to the future leading it together. So I am curious in terms of if your parents set this up in 1988, what was the wine media space like then when they set up? The, who were their competitors at that time that were already kind of in the market in the U.S.? Pretty different, actually. As you can imagine, everything was different then. Spectator was around, and I think they were the only big guys besides us around that time when we started. And we actually started as a catalog. A lot of people actually assume it was the reverse, that the magazine started and the catalog started, but actually the catalog is the original business. My dad was a wine salesperson at the time uh, in the 70s and noticed that there was a real dearth of wine accessories. So like quality corkscrews, glassware, storage, all of that. And so he and my mom, out of their attic in Chappaqua, New York, created a little pamphlet direct to consumer and tried started uh, testing, selling these things. And it just took off. And they successfully built that out for almost a full decade and thought, well, now all these people, we're selling them accessories. Maybe we should give them more information about wine. There aren't that many other competitors in the space, like you said. And so they started testing, creating a wine publication, sending it out to the same audience they were selling accessories to. And that was around the time when 60 Minutes did this really famous segment called The French Paradox. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Where red wine is uh, good it's for healthy. your cholesterol and, <laughs> and health. We need to re re have a new version of that or at least bring it back up for wine, I think. Yeah, exactly. So that kind of was the catalyst for the wine industry in the United States taking off. And that's when the magazine started, when the catalog started seeing wealth of success. So we were one of very few players at that time. We even actually had Robert Parker writing for us at one point in the early 90s. So everybody knows each other in this universe, as you know. And eventually, now there's more players, but it still kind of took a while. I feel like it wasn't until the last like 15 years that we started seeing more people coming into the space. But so that's how much time it took for everyone to kind of catch on. 
So we talked about the founding in 1988, and so now obviously there's been a lot of evolution. And I'm curious just to give our listeners a little bit of context because you know obviously your reach goes across a couple different things between your magazine, your newsletter, your website, social media. Maybe you could give us a little background of like what's the current state of wine enthusiast media? Like where does it where does it sit? Where does it have the most reach? Where does it have the most influence? Sure. So yeah, for wine enthusiast media, we still have the traditional print publication, which is kind of like the beating heart of the organization and is still successful today. Although I know that it is a trend that is not commonly seen for print publications. We're really happy to say that. And then our website is growing exponentially and our website encompasses traditional lifestyle content, like you see in the magazine, and then a huge breadth of ratings and reviews. That is where we house our entire database of wine ratings and reviews from since we started the website, essentially. And then we have a multitude of other platforms. So we have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're testing TikTok right now. So check us out. (laughs) Our podcast has been incredibly successful. And we're actually now testing starting a few other series on the same platform. So audio has been big for us. We are also even on voice activated platforms. So we have an Alexa skill that we created. And then I guess newsletters, like you mentioned, email is huge because not only the content, but we have a lot of what I'll call first party data from the catalog business as well. So because of that, we have all these interesting platforms that we can tap into to either market to our consumers or to feed them interesting content all around wine and the wine lifestyle. So as a media outlet, Wine Enthusiast is both a wine journalist and a wine critic because you rate wines and do things like that. How important is each section to the business and to your audience? Well, I would say they're essentially different means to the same goal. We're always striving to make wine more accessible to everyone. And uh, one piece is kind of through the lifestyle and context of living in a wine universe or being interested in wine. And that could be educational content or deep dives into like long form essays about one specific topic. But then there's also the more kind of utilitarian aspect of ratings and reviews, really helping our users make purchasing decisions. All of this feeds into our company mission, which is is we bring wine to life. And that's corporate-wide, whether it's commerce or the magazine. So we bring wine to life in buying wine, in traveling and finding wine and discovering it, in buying glassware and pouring wine into it, in uh, going a deep dive into the history of Tuscany or one specific grape or winemaking technique. We bring wine to life. And so food and travel and even spirits, those appear to be core categories. That's part of the lifestyle element. Exactly. So, I mean, if you, in your lifestyle, like think about how you're consuming wine, traveling and enjoying wine, it's not in a vacuum, right? Anymore. Mm-hmm. Let's say you go to, on a trip to Tuscany and you have a list of wineries you want to hit. You're probably going out for lunch on your way, having a spritz, having a meal. Even when you're studying wine, you're probably enjoying it with different foods, different wine pairings. All of those things are wine adjacent, I like to say. So it could be anything from travel to being at home and cooking. And it really all fits into that lifestyle or mindset, we like to say also. So how does that play into who the core demographic is of your audience? Yeah, about our demographic, something that I always like to say, I know I used this word before, but I feel like it's really perfect is that it's a mindset and not a age or gender or anything along those lines. So that could be someone who's just getting into wine or someone who's been reading about it for years. It's really about the curious wine consumer and how wine is really a vehicle to all these other life experiences that we're discussing. And when you really start to learn about wine, as I'm sure you guys have experienced this, you realize that you've 
almost feels like, you know, nothing, right? Like you start to learn and learn and then it's like the horizon moves further and further away. For so sure. whether you're in your first year as a, to having your first wine that someone's actually talking to you about in, in a way that, that feels educational, or you've been drinking wine for years and learning about it for years, there's still so much more to learn. So I feel like everybody feels like that curious wine drinker. And that's really our demo. I wouldn't say they like live in this specific market or anything like that. It's just the, the mindset. So we'd love to talk a little bit about like the evolving state of the wine critic. Obviously, wine critics were historically used to help consumers make purchasing decisions. Obviously, Robert Parker was, you know, very iconic in setting up and making wine critics uh, very popular with mainstream wine drinkers. But now with him retiring and then people like Galoni and Dunnick and Suckling kind of going independent. And then we, at the same time, we also have the rise of bloggers and now social media influencers. I'm curious on how you see that landscape changing. Sure. I mean, it's changed so much, right, in the last 20 years. <laughs> and I think that everything that uh, we'll talk about today speaks to how it's still so important, but it might be slightly different. Like, it might not be exactly what it was first set out to do. And to me, this changing la- landscape and evolving kind of cast of characters proves that really our tasters, I, of course, love and biased, of course, but they're more important than ever because something that we hold true to and really focus on is tasting fully blind. And that's not something that everybody does. Many of our competitors do not. And it's something that is a part of our DNA and our core values to make sure that we're unbiased in our opinions and that we hold true to our ethics. And that allows us to stay authentic and really, I think, bring a lot of quality to the content we're delivering to our readers. And I feel like it's something we don't talk about enough, which is why I'm talking about it right now, (laughs) because it is so important when you walk in the store and you see those shelf talkers or when you're a distributor rep and you're pitching a wine buyer for them to really know that the rating you're giving them actually means something. And to us, I still feel like it means everything because we hold true to this process. And like I said, the the new landscape, it's kind of anyone's game. It doesn't mean that there isn't a place for all of these folks that you're mentioning, but that's where we fall in is that like true ultimate trust and authenticity because we know we're going about it the right way. So I'm curious on the blind tasting. So every review by Wine this is 100% blind. Are you doing multiple rounds with multiple tasters? Can you maybe walk us through an example? Sure. So it's not multiple rounds, but it is blind. So the they'll typically taste within one region at a time. It's not like you just have this random selection of wines. So as you may look, if you were to look at our landscape of editors, you'll see they all either live or taste in one specific area. So like we have Virginia Boone that tastes in Northern California, Matt Catman for Central Coast, Karen O'Keefe who focuses on Italy, Rob, uh, Michael Shackner who does Spain and South America, on and on and on. I won't name all of them. You can check the uh, masthead for that. But the point is that they taste for a specific region, but within that region, they taste blind. So they might say when I were at the New York offices, which is probably the best example because we have all the staff here, although everybody has their own staff at their house to help them actually taste blind. We have folks that inventory the wines and then they'll decide what they're tasting that day, which are the tasting assistants. And so they'll put out maybe five to 10 wines, all with paper bags on them and numbers. And the reviewer will come in not knowing exactly what's under the bags, of course, and they'll write out their reviews for wines one through 10, for example. And then they'll hand their reviews, the score and the actual notes to the tasting assistant who will then input everything into the system. And after that's done, then they can reveal what the wines are. But the actual process of tasting, reviewing, scoring, all of that is happening before they know anything about who's under those bags. And they're literally brown paper bags with Sharpie. 
<laughs> Got it. And so would it be like a category like Napa Cab between $50 and $100 or Pinot Noir under $50 or something like that? Would they do, would it be in generalizations like that or price isn't even a factor? No, no price, but it might be like we're tasting Uco Valley today. It might be like a little more specific to the region, but it's not going to be like, this is this winemaker and this is his best wine, or, or this is their like a grocery store brand that they are making more of and it's priced at $8 or anything like that. It's really more about the region. That's the only thing they're kind of getting a little more of a sense of before, but that's why we try to really separate church and state. So like the advertisers we're working with have no say whatsoever on the ratings. And that is something that we've held true to since day one and still do today. And that that's one of the things that I always love to talk about because it's so much work and something that really means a lot to us. And I hope that it helps to build trust with not only our readers, but also the trade because I know it's a powerful selling tool for them and it only stays as powerful as we make it, right? So that's that's kind of why we really focus on it. So along the lines of that power, how do you feel critic reviews are today? Do they still have the same power to sell wine and build brands that they used to 20 years ago? I mean, you have all sorts of wineries and brands that were built off the back of a 100-point score or Spectator Wine of the Year or whatever. And with so many different critics now and so many different wines now, really, there's so many more wines than there were 20 years ago. Right. How do these reviews, do these reviews still sell wine? So yes, but I'll give a lot more context to that answer. Obviously. So I think if you get a hundred points, your number one wine of the year, like that's not everybody, right? That's only a few. So if that, if you're getting something like that, a true incredible accolade, that might help you build your brand in one fell swoop. But for the bulk of the industry, I think ratings are one incredibly powerful tool in your marketing tool set. So they're still really relevant because like you said, now there's more wine than ever. How do you tell the difference when you're looking at a wall of bottles that'll look similar as a consumer and as a wine buyer or a SOM or a retailer? So it's still extremely powerful, but it is only one piece of the puzzle, I would say. So, and that's where we come in with all of the other work that we do on the client side. So it's really like the the marketing funnel you're looking at. I look at the marketing funnel, the bottom, right before you purchase, I feel like ratings live in that space. It's a very transactional marketing tool. It helps you close on a sale at an account and it helps a consumer walk into a store and purchase something with confidence. But then when you move up the funnel to something more general, I know I'm using my hands on a podcast, but I think you can understand what I'm saying. The top of the funnel, general brand awareness, that's where we come in with our partnerships that we do with our clients. So like whether that's custom content or dedicated emails, social media packages, influencer marketing, that's the stuff that helps you tell your story. And that's really the top of the funnel that helps you have longer staying power in a consumer's mind, but maybe it's not as ROI driven as a rating. And so do those ratings, does it matter anymore or as much? Because I, I agree with you. I think it's one part of the marketing toolkit. And whereas people used to have great followership of Wine Advocate or the magazines and whatnot, and if you got a uh, 95 or 100, thousands of people would go to your door and start buying your wine. Mm-hmm. Today, it feels more like a marketing tool to say, I got 100 points from some critic whose name I don't even know or recognize. <laughs> and I'm going to send that to everybody or that's the reputation of it. So does having establishing the brand as a critic matter as much today as it, as it used to? Do you mean like a personality, like that kind of It critic? could be a personality like Robert Parker or a, you know, brand like Wine Enthusiast or Wine Spectator or Decanter yeah. or something like that, as opposed to 
Robert Vernick and at Wine Terroir gave it 100 points, right? And it's like 100 points or with all the so many different critics, like, I don't know, Jeannie Tolley and, and, right. you know, or you know, someone, Jancis Robinson gives it 20 or 100, right? Like, right. what does it build the brand and sell the wine like it used to? I think yes, but I do think that there are certain names that carry more weight than others. And I think that's probably inarguable in a way. That doesn't mean that it's not still valuable. I think that any rating carries color with it. If you ask your best friend whose palate you trust, if they like a wine and they tell you they like it, they're not a certified critic, but it still probably might sway your opinion, right? So it's an opinion. I actually like to think of it almost in terms of like Rotten Tomatoes, where you use like a critic score and it gives you a certain piece of information versus like the audience score. And when a critic reviews something really highly, I feel like that carries a lot of weight. And it almost gives you a little context as to what kind of wine that is. It's like someone who really knows and drinks a lot of wine and understands it versus an audience score. It might give you kind of a different idea of what that wine would be like. So I feel like all of them have value, but they do carry different weights within the spectrum of how powerful they are. What about, so that makes a lot of sense. And so you have audience scores would be like Vivino or a seller tracker or things like that. Yeah, and then exactly. you have the critics. But even within the critic landscape, there's so many now, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that have gone independent that maybe don't have a traditional print magazine, but they have their website and, you know, their scores and ratings. And when we talk to some of the auction houses, they say, you know, before it was just like advocate spectator, enthusiast, et cetera, and very few. And then those are the ones that mm. mattered for the collectors. And now it's like, they just take like an average of <laughs> different ones or other things because there's so many. So like, how do you, how do we as consumers or the trade even think about the difference between a James Suckling versus a wine enthusiast versus a wine advocate score? Well, I mean, I think it's almost subjective in for everybody else, right? It's just, it's, who do you follow? And I think that anybody who really wants to follow ratings should do their own research as to what palette aligns with their own and what amount of credibility that person has, really. And most people in the industry, I would say, are able to do that. But for consumers, I find like the our buying guide, for example, one of the best things about it is that it comes up first on Google. So that in and of itself gives it credibility because it's so easy to use and so widely used that that it almost adds to the authority of the ratings and reviews. Am I answering your question? Or do yeah. you want to? Okay. And I, I almost like diving a little bit into that. You know, you mentioned some of your critics like Virginie Boone versus the wine enthusiast. So if, if people go and say, oh, I trust the wine enthusiast palette, but that's really made up of 10 different or more critics, do they need to know each individual critic to really align themselves on what they're going to like? Sometimes I think it's both. I think it's like, you know, that we're always going to do the research and we're only going to have someone taste that we truly trust and have vetted. So that's a level of trust that's already there. And then there's the person themselves that I think is helpful as well. So it's kind of like a one-two punch of people that you can trust. Like we're always going to make sure that the person who's tasting for those regions is extremely knowledgeable, has been in the space for a long time, knows the region. But if you want to do your own research and figure out what they taste, I always think that's helpful. But you'll always know that it's not just like some random person that has been drinking wine and has a, no offense, but like has a blog. No offense to blogs. Blogs are great. But it is easy to set up a blog, right? So it is not as easy to set up 
30 plus years of knowledge and industry savvy and all of that stuff. So I think that's where we add some trust, whether or not you know the person specifically. But I wouldn't say that wine enthusiast has like a palette. Like sometimes people used to say Parker had a very specific palette. So there was like the Parkerization of specific wines. And we don't really have that because we're so varied and because there is succession between ratings and reviews and tasters and people who change. But you have the trust of the publication overall. Okay, so there is some form of oversight or governance to that. So like, or you just, you build up critics in a region who have that focus and that knowledge and that context that builds that trust. And so, and then obviously if you lose someone or get someone new or someone switches the beat, basically, that you work to find an equal replacement for them. Exactly. Yep. And sometimes it'll be someone leaves and someone who's already been tasting on our team will pick up a new region. So it might even be someone that you already know from working with us before or from reading. But that's just something that naturally happens and evolves as people change their careers and and evolve. So I am curious in terms of the advantage or disadvantage in terms of having this wider swath of content. You know, obviously, if you write like you mentioned, uh, the history of Tuscany and then layer in your Tuscan reviews into that. Is that helpful, harmful, sometimes complicated? How does that content and those different types of content merge together? Because not everybody does that. Right. I guess that's true. Yeah. So I feel like it adds some like key takeaways for somebody who's reading something that's helpful to them because it's it's like, and now what do I do with this information? How do I bring it home? How do I bring it to life? Like I was saying before. And a lot of the time those ratings and reviews are made by the same person who's writing that article. So it's usually like Karen O'Keefe's good example. Since we're talking about Italy, she rates and reviews Italian wines. So then she'll say, these are wines I've rated in the past that I like that are examples of what I'm talking about today. So how do I bring what I'm reading about into my house so I can learn more and taste alongside the information I'm reading. And I feel like anytime I finish an article, I kind of immediately want to figure out how do I experience it. So I think that's what it is. It's more of a reader service to make sure that they feel like once they finish it, now what do I do with this information? Now how do I dive in? And like it's almost like finishing a food story and finishing it with a recipe. It adds something that makes it utilitarian for you to bring into your home. And I actually always, I always use food as an example for wine because giving people direction like recipes, it's what allows us to really communicate and come into your kitchen or come into your glass. And that's what ratings and reviews allow us to do. One thing I find interesting with wine, particularly over other forms of critically acclaimed media, maybe, is that there's not a lot of negative criticism that like makes it to the consumer. So like a lot of times they're telling people are telling you what to drink, but not necessarily what not to drink. And it feels like 20 years ago, what not to drink was part of the equation. And now it seems like that's really gone away. And I'm not sure if uh. that's due to the whole media aspect of it, that it's it's also people who are going to be you know, buying advertising and therefore it just goes away or just people are, or wineries are just not publishing the context that they don't want or not publishing the number that they don't want and just the words to it. I'm curious on mm. your take on that, how that's evolved. Well, in my view, for our kind of voice in the, in this space, we're all about accessibility and something that we're kind of trying to rally against constantly is this old world mentality of that's the wrong thing to drink, that's the right thing to drink, or you're enjoying it incorrectly, this is the correct way to enjoy it. That sense of snobbery that has historically been associated with wine. And so I think by never saying no and just saying yes and, that allows us to make it feel more welcoming and open. And I, that's what we try to do with our content. So as opposed to, to being you know negative and talking down, I feel like I'd rather 
just say what you should be doing. And I think that that's kind of the ethos of our brand at Wine Enthusiast is bringing wine to people in a way that's not condescending. So maybe that's the, that's what I'm hearing in what you're describing. Yeah, mine's less of, I get that. And I actually, this is a very good counterpoint to that direction of that question in terms of you don't want to like, like everybody's palate's different. Everybody you know, could enjoy something differently. But if you're following a critic or a, or a magazine because you want to know, you trust their palate, it seems like the industry and the media for wine reviews has really gone away from saying bad things. They kind of just, they maybe say less things as opposed to saying <laughs> negative things. Uh, it's, it's, it's maybe a little bit more generic. And, and maybe the number helps with that. And maybe the fact that, you know, maybe the number helps you kind of like put, put it on the line in terms of what you really think about it as a critic. Right. Well, yeah, I, I think it's just if you don't have anything nice to say, kind of just thing, <laughs> especially if you're a brand, you're certainly not going to publish a score that you don't like. And for us, I mean, we taste almost 25,000 wines a year. So if we published every single wine we tasted in print, we do publish every single wine we taste online, actually. So, and some of those are not positive. They're not, they're not like, you know, scathing. They're, they're not scathing. Sure. They're not scathing. We're not trying to like hurt anybody's feelings here, but they're not all glowing, but we really only publish in print the glowing reviews just because we only have so much square footage on a page. So, but if you okay, really so want to do curation. some digging, right. Yeah, okay, exactly. So the, exactly. So the print in is pr- curation. And then, but if you, if you're looking for it and you really want to look up a wine, they can find out if it's one of those 25,000 wines, what someone thought about it. Oh yeah. If, if we rated something and it's not that positive. It's still going to go up on the website because the website is endless. We don't have to limit ourselves. And if, if they take the time and effort to taste something and rate it and they stand behind it, we're going to publish it. So, yeah. So you rate 25,000 wines a year. This is just a curiosity. Have you seen the, like the curve of scores change over time? Because there's a hypothesis, I'd say, that some people believe that scores have moved higher. And I could be true just because of wine quality and the technology to make wine has gone up. But I was just curious if you guys have seen any trends. I actually haven't. I haven't tried, but we could. We could try it. It's a great question. Well, for luxury wine marketing, the, the book I wrote with Liz Tosh, I did an analysis to, on wine advocate score, 100 point scores, right? And so uh-huh. there's so many more 100 point scores today than there were 15 years ago, right? It's something like eight times, I think. Uh-huh. And I was like, so is it? Great inflation, but then when you actually do the math, because they rate eight times as many wines now that they do today, the bar is still the same. It's just that there's so many more wines out there. But that's really important in terms of the value of a 100-point score for marketing because it's less Mm -hmm. rare and scarce just because there's more of them because there's more wines out there. And how do I build myself as a brand? It's one that is not enough because there's so many of them out there. Right. Huh. I mean, there aren't, there aren't that many of them out there, but I guess, I guess that's well, true. <laughs> to 20 years ago, there's a lot more. <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> but that is a good question. So if a handful of people could put your winery on the map, if you're a new, trying to build yourself up as a new winery, what do you see as the path today for someone to kind of like break into the market? If you're, say, I'm making Vernick Wine Incorporated, and I want to, in my Vernick Napa Cabernet, I want to get it out there. Like, what? What's the path? How do they leverage media and, and critics and things like wine enthusiasts? Like, how? What is their path to kind of like make a dent in the market and get some recognition? 
Well, I think scores are a great thing because it costs you almost nothing. So you might as well try. And if you do well, you can use it. So why wouldn't you just submit it for ratings? That's my view on that specific piece. But beyond that, it gets back to that kind of like funnel aspect and your marketing stack of what you want to use to build your brand. And storytelling is really the business we're in here because wine is so much more than fermented juice in a bottle. So how do you build that story? How do you tell it? And Today, I, I feel like it's the best time to do something like that because of social media. So that's probably where I would start. And then I would start looking for like-minded partners, of course, like wine enthusiasts, where you can find the exact right target consumer and then what makes sense for your brand to tell that story? Is it because you are all about a sense of place and you want to really describe where the wine is made and then you would do like custom story content that goes out to the right user? Or is it all about like getting people to visit your tasting room and D to C and doing a dedicated email driving to purchase? Or is it doing an influencer partnership and creating more kind of like that trendy branding vibe? Like, is that more of the space that you live in? Because there's room for everybody now and there's the cost to entry is getting lower and lower in terms of marketing. So I just feel like there's so many tools, but ratings are certainly still one of the tools and one of the easiest things to do. So building on that point of the broader marketing toolkit and landscape, print is one element, digital and of many different forms is out there. Mm -hmm. As that media landscape changes, how has your audience reach changed from print to digital and how is that changing and how are you adapting to that? Sure. Yeah. So the print publication is actually doing quite well during COVID. We saw a really interesting trend and, and that's probably a lot of what I'll talk about now is how COVID changed the game across the board. We're not sure how things would go, but because people were so sick of screens, we actually saw our subscription rates go up because of screen exhaustion and oversaturation and because we're not hard news. So people were probably all sick of reading the news in the last 18 months. I know I was. And so being able to sit down and not stare at a blue light supported device and just have a moment alone with something that wasn't about everything that was going on outside your door, it saw an increase. And I think it when you really think it through, it makes perfect sense as to why. And then digital, the same. So what digital, our website was interesting. We saw an increase in content because people were on their phones so much, but we saw our buying guide, which is the term we use for our ratings and review section, go through the roof. And that is because of the new trend I'm sure you guys are seeing in e-commerce and D2C during COVID, but I don't see that changing anytime soon. Just exponential growth in purchasing wine online, which is a now new learned behavior that I think we all saw trending up before this, but then it was like we leapt five years into the future because of COVID. And we saw people coming to our website and we actually did a lot of uh, research into why they were coming to our website. And 65% of them said it was to buy wine. And hmm. so they would land on our ratings and reviews. They'd probably Google a wine, like a general category or even a specific one, come into the buying guide via Google, read the review, and then click buy now and purchase it. And we just saw that happening constantly. Did you see a larger, because you guys sell wine-related products like wine fridges and glasses and decanters. Did you see a larger lift in wine over those other products from your catalog? We saw a huge lift in sales on our catalog division. We don't track the wine sales. We just know they were clicking buy now a lot because we don't sell wine. But we saw that they their intent 
to purchase was why they were coming to the website because we just did like surveys and things like that. But for the commerce division, huge jump in storage, furniture, glassware, because people thought I can't go to the wine bar, I'll bring the wine bar home. So they upgraded everything that they had, or they started needing to store wine because they were buying D to C retailers, all that stuff. Like if you're going to buy wine online, you're going to buy a case. You're not going to pay shipping and order one bottle. Right. It's just silly. So you need somewhere to put it. And because of that, the catalog just, yeah, has been doing very well since COVID. We're very lucky. Not everybody was, obviously. So so print was up, website was up. What about other new digital platforms or social media or other things that you mentioned? You have a podcast, social, TikTok. Which ones of those have been doing well for wine enthusiasts? And what kind of conversion or, or reason do people go there as opposed to you know buying wine online in the buying guide? Sure. One other thing that was interesting based on COVID that was up was our industry site, Beverage Industry Enthusiast, BIE, we call it. And that's because everyone was kind of like, what's happening? Are restaurants going to open, not open? Who's doing well? Who isn't? And so our trade news, which was always, we've always had it, but this past year, it just became a new essential tool for all of our readers. But to answer your question, Instagram became what our biggest platform probably Facebook is still popular, but Instagram is like with really the, the future for our database, I would say. And I think it's not just because of content. It's also because of commerce, because it's easy to shop. So people started using Instagram to shop a lot more than they ever did before and commenting because you're alone in your house during COVID. People are just like having discussions on their phones on Instagram. TikTok is so new for us that I don't really know yet. It's been fun. I don't know if you guys use TikTok. I've fallen in love with it. I think it's the future of educational content for us, but it's not there yet. But if you're using TikTok, definitely check us out because we need some new followers. <laughs> my fiance works there, so I have oh, to really? make out. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, that's so funny. It's so fun. I love TikTok. I feel like such an old millennial that I'm just finding yeah. it out now, but... <laughs> you, get stuck. you get stuck in a loop, just like, wait, how much time did I just spend? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's amazing how different it is for each person yes. like how they curate your thing so i only get videos of animals doing funny things hers <laughs> <laughs> are all completely different i'm sure uh-huh. hers are different mine are all like positive parenting techniques <laughs> <laughs> and, and and so I, yeah i like those um I, and then i'll like send them to my husband i'm like look i learned something new but I do think it's the future. And as we all know, social media is so cyclical, like you're popular one day and the next day things change. So we'll have to see how it translates and evolves because Instagram used to be such a magical place. And now it's so big and so ubiquitous that it's not really the same kind of feeling anymore. But for us, it was huge because it was so big for commerce and so big for content commentary. And so, yeah, that's really what we're seeing a lot of growth also. So were you able to track a lot of the impact on commerce and other things on Instagram or, I mean, we have a podcast, obviously, so I'd be interested to understand like how your podcast plays into that as well. But just what are you tracking relative to all these new digital platforms in terms of how your partnerships are doing and things like that? So one of the big trends that we noticed was them wanting to get closer to the sale than ever. So get to the bottom of the funnel and be really ROI driven. So we actually started adding tools to create actual shopping carts on some of our programs. So we could literally track the sale of wine on an ad campaign or the ROAS, if you will, return on ad spend. 
But then there's also just like email acquisition is another great tool to measure the success of a campaign. So webinars were huge for us because education was such a big desire for people during COVID. You know, I'm home, I might as well better myself while I'm here. So I'll watch a webinar on Champagne or on Provence or something like that. It's educational, but it's also fun. And so those have have still been huge and were huge for us. And it's an excellent email acquisition tool for our clients. So that way they can create their own relationships with these people who are clearly interested in their region or their products. And so volume of emails, literal wine sales, and then of course, traffic and impressions is another way in which we can measure the success of a campaign. Engagement on social media, I'm sure you guys have seen all the ways that you can use the dashboards on Instagram and Facebook and things like that to measure the success. And yeah, I think those are all really the tools where we saw a lot more desire to use them. For podcasts, which have been really popular for us lately, is you can use discount codes. I know it sounds silly, but I'm sure that you guys hear them all the time. That's an easy way to track. And what I love about podcasts and audio, and I'm not just saying that because we're on a podcast, I'm obsessed with podcasts, is that there's the native feeling of an ad read. And the way that it's like an intimate moment where you're like alone in your ear with a person reading an ad to you that makes you feel like you're talking to a friend and it doesn't feel as selly. And that's why I feel like it's really the future. And so I'm really excited about audio and expanding that platform for us. And our current podcast is doing very well. And we have plans for a few new ones that are coming out within the next six months. Yeah, the advertorial, like the, because you already enthralled in the host, like often, most times those ads aren't done by someone else and just like copied in, like it would be on a TV commercial. It's actually the host of the podcast actually adding that's That's what we did for ours as well for our ads. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. And so, are you seeing now with your customers who are buying advertising through you is like, what's the split between? digital and print? Like, are you seeing it like most new customers being more heavily weighted towards digital than print? Or is it still a fair split? The answer is more digital, (laughs) Uh, quite a bit more digital. Print is still doing very well. It's very healthy. And it will always be because there's always a place for that type of marketing and there will always be a place for print. But digital has just been explosive for us in the last, really, again, COVID, just any trends we saw catapulted five years in the future. So any like clients we were working with that were testing a few digital things here and there now are spending more of their budget on digital than ever before. Trying new programs, we're coming up with new things. Like our sales team was so extremely nimble during COVID to come up with new programs. And those programs are still residually extremely powerful. So webinars are a great example. This whitelisted shopping cart is another good example. Anything that drove direct-to-consumer sales or signups, very, very popular and very helpful. And using some of our current makeup, our like the kind of stable of relationships. So like influencer relationships, we did a ton of influencer marketing, whether it was from our 40 under 40 series or just folks that we've worked with over the years. That has really been popular right now because Instagram is so huge. And yeah, I feel like white influencers... I love it. I love them. I follow as many as I can. I feel like they make you feel accessible and fun. It's like this whole new lens of looking at wine. And we work with a ton of them. So I don't feel like they're up against us in any way. I feel like it's a symbiotic relationship. Exactly. And I love doing programs with partners like that. And our clients seem to as well. 
Yeah, I think that the interesting thing there is in terms of sometimes calculating the ROI and like how does that influencer speak about a brand? What kind of oversight is there? Is it genuine? Is it authentic to them? Because as soon as that influencer starts to lose some of that authenticity, people will start to question some of the other content they make, even if it wouldn't be uh, sponsored. And so there's definitely a fine line in terms of some people are cashing in on it and other people are like staying true sure. themselves. So it's just, it's interesting to see who's here for the long term versus the short term and, and also who pivots as new types of media come about. So like if you're not playing in the video space, it's really hard at this point yeah. because you because video is so dominant across all these platforms now. Yeah, it's true. And I think one of the reasons why people are coming to us for influencers is because our influencers aren't necessarily someone that just has like a ton of photos of wine. They might be someone who started their own wine bar and it had a different viewpoint on it or someone who's a mixologist or so, it's usually someone we've written about that's in the industry. So it's not just someone that like started an account and put up some like emojis and Canva backgrounds and like moved on with their day. They're usually people who are actually bought in and integrated into the industry and and know what they're talking about. So I think that's why they're coming to us for them. And so I'm curious on how you monetize these different, you're playing in so many spaces. Like when you go to like provide an offering or a solution for a brand, like how are you pitching that to them? Are you basically saying here, we think based on your brand, it would, and based on what we know of your customer, we think this combination would work to you? Or are you kind of doing it, you know, a line item like they say, hey, we want Facebook advertising and TikTok and print? Or like, how are they breaking it down for you? Usually it's a lot of listening because like you said, there's so many tools at our disposal. We have to really custom build every single plan depending on what they want to do. And so almost all of them look different. I wouldn't say that it's like, oh, this is our social media plan. Everyone gets the same thing. You want to drive towards this specific consumer. You want sales in this specific place and you want brand awareness around off-premise accounts. So here are the things that we would recommend and here's how we'll tie it into a bow. Like here's the thing that's tying it all together. And one of the things that I think is bringing in a lot of business for us is that we really listen and we build something new and fresh almost every time. And we really try to at least. I mean, I love doing that stuff. I think it's so much fun. And our team is so intimately fluent in the wine and spirits industry, that they're able to do that. So if you tell me that you're trying to hit wine buyers in the Boston market, I can tell you here are some things that I could do with you to make that happen. Or you're telling me we want a collector that has like an empty nest and it's like, I don't know, like all those kinds of targeting tools or where you really feel like you know the person that you're looking for, we can usually figure it out, especially because the catalog provides us really the richest database of information in the industry. We have all first party data, which is I'm sure you guys have been reading, not all tech companies are going to be allowed to do that anymore. Cookies are probably going away. So we're really in a, a perfect position to be able to use the information that we have from our commerce division to create excellent target now and into the future, as long as they're opted in, of course. So you talked about return on ad spend. Do you calculate that as a package? Do you do the individual tools that you have? I'm just curious as to like the types of returns you're seeing on various tools and if some have more impact than others. I'm sure it varies by brand and and whatnot, but... It varies by... Yeah, we don't even usually calculate it in that way. It really depends on how we're measuring it because it's not necessarily the right metric unless it is a, like we were talking about, like a commerce spend against trying to just like 
sell bottles, but we usually use other metrics to measure the success. So like, like impressions, emails, brand lift, engagement, all those are all the metrics. And we'll deliver all those things as a package that they can see all the ways in which that actual ad campaign helps them to raise awareness or sell bottles. But it, it's not just a, a one piece of the puzzle. It's really everything together to tell the story of what they did with us, their partnership. So are you seeing any new trends in wine media bubbling up today that you think you know people need to know about or pay attention to? I think some of them that I was talking about before are trends that I think are never going away, which is connectivity to commerce. And that especially for us, it's content and commerce together. So it's like telling the story, essentially selling and then closing the sale. And that's something that I think is never going away because people are now much more comfortable buying wine online. And for us, we're actually planning to combine our catalog and our media company and unify the businesses into one website. And so that's going to allow us to even more so integrate content and commerce together. And there aren't that many companies that are doing it right now, but those that are, are doing a good job, I feel. So that's the, what we're kind of driving towards. So if you have the content and commerce, are you measuring the GMV or the gross merchandise value that is sold through your platform? Gross merchandise value. For wine, like how much wine, how many dollars of wine are you actually selling through the carts or other things? Do you measure that? We can measure it, but we don't actually personally sell it. So sometimes we'll help them, give them that information, that data. But the commerce I'm mostly referring to is selling like catalog products and things like that. Like that's what we'll be integrating into our edit. Because there are some other platforms we talked to like Vivino or like 750, uh the distribution. They have that metric that they use of gross merchandise value of how much volume of wine actually flows through their system, even though they don't sell it themselves. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Maybe we should do that. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) So Jackie, to wrap up the episode, I'm really curious if you have a hot take. Like what are what are you most excited about in the wine industry in 2021? Like it doesn't have to be for wine enthusiasts. It can be for you in general, just a overarching view. What are you most excited about? I love that there seem to be no more barriers to entry or people are really breaking them down. There doesn't seem to be this. I mean, I know I was saying we've been like working against those for years. And I feel like we're kind of almost there in terms of people entering the space, like new products entering the space. Where I would like to see more of it is people who are not in the space yet finding ways into the industry. So whether it's people of diverse backgrounds or people who never worked in the industry before, just finding new ways. And I'm, I'm already seeing it, which I'm so excited about, to break into the industry because I feel like it's an industry that ha- used to be an old boys club and it doesn't really seem to be that anyone wants it to stay that way. <laughs> and I certainly do not. So I think that's one of the most exciting trends I'm seeing. New brands breaking into the space and new people breaking into the space. And I think with that, we're going to see the industry just evolve dramatically over the next 10 to 20 years in a really exciting way. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree with your excitement on that area. It's interesting to see so many new voices and so many new perspectives because in the end of the day, it is just a consumable beverage that we all love yep. and everybody's opinion matters. Agreed. Well, we want to thank you for joining us. It was great to learn a lot about the wine enthusiast and, and hear about your business and how you're evolving from a print into from 1988 all the way to now uh, <laughs> in the face of a pandemic and all the evolution that has taken place. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I really enjoyed it. And I look forward to listening to your other episodes. They look amazing. So thanks. 
Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.